Boys and girls, your attention, please. Presenting a new exciting radio program featuring the thrilling adventures of an amazing and incredible personality. And now, The Sports Buzz with your host, Kevin Wolf, with Andy Loigu. And welcome to this edition of the Sports Buzz. Hello there, sports junkies. How is everyone doing? As boy, has the month of March had some madness to it as we are in the thick of things when it comes to the NCAA March Madness Tournament and where better to come to than the sports buzz as we dissect and give you all types of college basketball analysis on this evening's broadcast as one game just ended as Florida Atlantic University and the upset special continues in this year's NCAA tournament, which has been a very odd one to say the least, and one that has had more brackets busted than usual as Florida Atlantic defeats the Kansas State Wildcats 79-76 to and the Florida Atlantic Owls will now be taking their talents to Houston, Texas for the Final Four next Saturday. And when you talk about March Madness, you talk about the Cinderella Special. When you talk about March Madness, you talk about the mid-major upsetting one of the top-tier big-time programs. When you talk about March Madness, you talk about excitement, you talk about fun, and you get the average everyday sports fan that may not necessarily tune in to college basketball throughout the regular season glued to the television set for this big tournament year in and year out. And if I would have came to the microphone tonight and told you that this is the first year that not one number one seed has reached the Elite Eight in the NCAA tournament, you would have told me I was crazy as Purdue got bounced out by the New Jersey Young Cinderella Special in FDU, the Fairleigh Dickinson University Knights. And Purdue every year seems to get into the tournament, but they never can seem to make a deep run as Matt Painter needs to reassess his coaching abilities to try and find out how the Boilermakers can come over the top. And then... We had Jim Laranega and the Miami Hurricanes go out there and really show you why they're worthy of being a top-tier NCAA basketball team as they go out there and they send Houston, a team that was predicted to get to the championship, a team with an All-American in Sasser, who was the highlight player for them, and a great head coach in Calvin Sampson, couldn't find a way to beat Laranaga and company, and they fall short of reaching the big championship game. And then you have the Kansas Jayhawks, another team that seems to make deep runs every year, but this year they had to do it without the likes of their experienced head coach, 
in Bill Self, who was having some medical problems and some heart issues, and Kansas found themselves bounced out of this NCAA tournament earlier than expected. And with that said, Andy, how about we talk some March Madness basketball on this evening's broadcast? Well, I think we're we're compelled to. <laughs> you know, it's funny. One of the few things that's gone right in my bracket is this uh, section final between Miami and Texas. Uh, that's one that I had. Uh, I had Arizona bounced out the very first day by Princeton, but uh, I'm certainly happy for Princeton. I can talk about Princeton later. Some of the, uh, I used to cover them uh, many years back and uh, met Pete Carrill and all that, and uh, saying we can get into that later on. But uh, I'm down to one Final Four team now, and that's Texas. I only had one number one going to the Final Four in the brackets I filled out before this madness all began, and that was Kansas. As of 10 minutes ago, I still had two Final Four teams left, but Kansas State has gone bye-bye now. (laughs) But it, it, it has been one surprise after another, and as far as Purdue... You know, Purdue's getting a history of uh, getting knocked out by double-digit seeds here. You know, they uh, or wasn't Purdue the team that lost uh, St. Peter's last year in the same uh, situation here. Yes, so. they were, Andy. And listen, getting back to the Kansas State Wildcats quickly, who finished their season at 26-10, and 10, and what a great run it was with a good head coach. But it was really about their main key focal point of their guard in Marquise Noel, who was the contributing factor to this team and their tournament success. And listen, he went back to Madison Square Garden. He played a tough Michigan State team led by Tom Izzo. Tom Izzo, 25 consecutive NCAA tournament appearances, a job well done. You know me, Andy. I'm a huge Michigan State guy. Have a love affair with Tom Izzo every year. He was the last Big Ten guy still standing. Yes, he was. We'll give him credit for that. So he still has the title of Mr. March. Yeah, and listen, what Joey Hauser did and what key guys on that Michigan State team did night in and night out to get them to the point that they were at in the Sweet 16 was incredible. But no other player was bigger out of the Big 12 and for the Kansas State Wildcats than Marquise Noel, who's a Harlem guy and a point guard and one of the most brilliant college athletes I've seen, Andy, from an athleticism standpoint point in a very long time as he was a key factor to the Wildcats success well one play I'll always remember for years to come was when Noel had the ball there and he appeared to be disagreeing with his coach on what play to call Noel was like a pitcher shaking off signs while his coach looked like he was calling a play and then just boom he makes a perfect alley-oop pass on the dime for a dunk and it made it uh, seem like they, they suckered the opposition into thinking they didn't know what they were going to do, and then boom, they had that alley-oop dunk. That was just one of the funniest moments in basketball that uh, I could imagine. That, that, that was a, one of my takeaways that I'll remember. We'll see replays of that play for uh, years to come. That, that was a special play. But, you know, it was cool that uh, not only Noel, but some other guys in that team also who are New York City guys, that they all came back to Madison Square Garden in uh, such a big game. And uh, that's uh, that's one of the nice stories of this tournament, that they uh, managed to get back to the Garden, homecoming, as it were, you know. 
Yeah, and they had a good homecoming for the Sweet 16 round. They played tough tonight, but the Florida Atlantic Owls, Andy, only three losses in the season, 35 wins as they extend their winning streak now in this NCAA tournament. They've just been remarkable. They're a great perimeter shooting team. They're beyond the arc three-point shooting team. And the job that Dusty May has done with this school and this program and the way he's put them on the map and has made them a fierce competitor, I think right now makes them a huge significant factor in the final four round and with the way we've seen them play especially in this tournament they can be a team that may go out there in a tournament that's really been crazy to figure out week in and week out and just win the whole darn thing at this point well they're a team of playmakers uh, that all five guys on the floor can pass the ball. And they've also got a center who's always in the right place at the right time. Yeah. I had them uh, beating Memphis uh, in their first game, but I didn't think they would get past Purdue, but it turns out that <laughs> Purdue didn't go very far. Yeah. I didn't, I, it's a real surprise to me that they're in the final four now uh, for sure. But uh, you know, the, this team has played so well, you can't, uh, can't go against them in the final four i mean they're a tough team to beat they're doing the right things at the right time yes they are andy and another marquee matchup to finish out the saturday night first session of the elite eight will be the yukon huskies in what a season they've had with a lot of big time players and a team that just seems to make key shots when they need to going up against a team that is no stranger to the NCAA tournament, and that is Mark Few and the Gonzaga Bulldogs. Gonzaga coming off of that epic win over UCLA with a big three-point shot right in the final seconds to sink Nick Cronin and the UCLA Bruins from having a chance to get to the national championship game and Mark Few and the Gonzaga Bulldogs with Drew Timmy being a big playmaker in the center there Andy are making some noise again in this year's NCAA tournament and they'll have to try and get by a very well-polished UConn Husky team. Yeah, I had UConn winning two games in the bracket, and then I, I figured they'd run into Kansas and lose there. But uh, but here they are. I did have Gonzaga getting this far, uh, but I had them losing to Kansas. So uh, UConn is again, once again, not to be underestimated. Uh, by the way, a big story today on the women's side. Speaking of UConn, is a uh, UConn women lost, and they won't be in the final eight for the first time in like uh, 15 years, which is quite a story today. They lost to Ohio State today. Yeah, Gino Oriyama's done a great job with the women's team for the UConn Huskies, Andy, and they're a team every year that finds their way to winning success with championship trophies and big runs in the March Madness tournament, but sadly they couldn't get the job done this year, so we have to hope that the men's team can try and be the better of the two programs and try and go out there and beat Mark Few and the Gonzaga Bulldog. And then tomorrow to round out the Elite Eight and finish out 
the weekend with a trip to the Final Four on the line will be the Creighton Blue Jays out of the Big East taking on the San Diego State University Aztec Sandy. And this San Diego State team has really prided themselves on their defense. Their head coach, Ducher, seems to be making all the right moves at the right time. And he has really led this team to significant success. And they will have to try and get by a Creighton team that has been extremely tough to solve they have a lot of big guys and the one thing Creighton does is they spread the floor they play big and they can try to get to the basket in all key areas on the hardwood and you know guys like Trey Alexander and Cork Brenner who has been a problem for any opposing defense to solve and Nemhard these three guys have really been the trouble for the opposing defense when it comes to the Creighton Blue Jays and all the success that Craig McDermott has had with this team thus far. They certainly played a great game last night against uh, a Princeton team that proved itself to be very very tough and very worthy of going deep into the tournament here. That, That was a good one last night too and Creighton made the big shots that they had to make down the stretch. They uh Uh, They didn't give Princeton anything. (laughs) And the San Diego State Aztecs, Andy, they're a scrappy team. They got a lot of uh, young guys, but they got a defense that is really tough to solve for the opposing offense. So if any team can tame some of these stars on the Creighton Blue Jays, it can be the San Diego State Aztecs as they look to get to a Final Four in Houston and then to finish out the Elite Eight round this weekend. Boy, what a job has Jim Laranega done with the Miami Hurricanes. He is a top-tier head coach. We know what he did back in the day with George Mason and the tournament success he had with them. Well, he's had that continued success with the Miami Hurricanes, and they will take on a Texas team that Rodney Terry has really come in and take over for Chris Beard since he was let go and has really made a significant statement to the athletic department and the president of the University of Texas that he's deserving of the head coaching job, remove the interim tag, and get him hired as soon as possible as Texas has been a tough team to solve as a two-seed in this tournament. So we end out the first round tonight with UConn and Gonzaga, and we finish out Sunday with Creighton, San Diego State, and Miami and Texas to round out the Elite Eight portion of the men's basketball tournament. Yeah, that Midwest region was the one region where I got it right, where I have uh, Miami playing Texas at this stage. I had Miami beating Drake and then beating Indiana to get to this point. Yeah, Laranega, he, he did real well last year, too, and I remembered that, how well they played in the you know, in the tournament last year. And so, uh, you know, I feel about Laranega almost as much as uh, you feel about uh, Mr. Izzo there, that uh, this guy can coach in the big tournament games. I also had Xavier winning a couple of times, and, uh, yeah, I had Auburn beating Iowa, and uh, Houston going far, but not all the way to the final round. I didn't have Houston going to the final four. 
I just didn't think they could sustain a win streak. And the one thing uh, I have to say about Jim Laranega quickly, Andy, is every time his team seems to be in trouble in a big spot in one of these tournament games, he always calls a timeout. He always draws up the right play or the right situation for his team to go out there and attack, and they always find a way to use whatever he draws up to their advantage and find a way to come out and either garner a lead or get a big win in a game, and he's just fun to watch his teams are really exciting a lot of his teams play fast too they're a fast paced type of basketball team Miami and they rely on the zone a lot to really go out there and be a big uh, part of their success yeah he just gives that team good steady leadership you know the, the players really buy into everything <laughs> and uh, he's just one heck of a real good coach and he just has a good way with his players Yes, he does. And speaking of the great state of New Jersey, where we broadcast from on a weekly basis, the one thing I have to tell you, Andy, is New Jersey knows how to represent sometimes in big spots. And boy, has the New Jersey college teams fared well in the tournament. Last year, the St. Peter's Peacocks, under the leadership of Shaheen Holloway with a young team, made some noise but fell short in the Elite Eight and ended up not getting to a Final Four. And then this year, you had the Fairleigh Dickinson Knights with first-year head coach and Tobin Anderson, who comes over from St. Thomas Aquinas, seven years there, tries to up his ante by going to a D1 school in Fairleigh Dickinson, brings three key guys over from St. Thomas Aquinas to FDU, gets in as one of the first four in the tournament, beats Texas Southern, and then they go out there and they beat Purdue, and they etch their way all the way to the round of 32 and fall short, but really became a fun, exciting team, one of the smallest teams in the tournament from a height perspective with their players, but a team that New Jersey latched on to quickly and a team that spectators across the country who may not have really known about Fairleigh Dickinson got to know quickly in this year's tournament. I was going to ask, uh, was that a pun intended when you said fall short? Because they were the shortest uh, team in the tournament. And it is ironic that they beat the tallest team in the tournament, which was Purdue. Uh, and and now the, they've already had to hire uh, their assistant as their head coach for next season because no, se- no sooner... Uh, was their appearance in the tournament done than uh, the coach signed with Iona to replace uh, Patino, who uh, went to uh, St. John's. So we've already got some coaching carousel going on here. Uh, Yes, we do. And by the way, Tobin Anderson, after his press conference with Iona, got to speak to a media reporter, and this is what he had to say about his experience on the hardwood, transitioning from D2 to D1, and how he got to this point to become the next head coach of the Iona Gales. I've heard the term overnight sensation, and I, and I kind of like, well, listen, I was a, I was a small, I was a coach in Division Three, Division Two for so long, in places that were, you know, and we recruiting at that level, recruiting to small college is, is way harder than it is at this level because you have to go financial aid and you have to convince kids to go non-scholarship things like that. So, so I, it's it's not an overnight sensation because I've been working my, you know, my tail off the last twenty some years. So, um, but now to be here at this this you know this situation, like you know, I'm, I'm thrilled. 
I'm thrilled. But like, we went to the NCAA tournament at FDU with the idea we could go out there and compete and we had a chance to win. I beat Purdue was obviously probably something most people thought, I mean, that was an was unbelievable upset. But, you know, um, I've always had programs that I thought, let's, big goals, big aspirations, let's do great things. I want the players to believe that, I want everybody else to feel that too. I feel that. I'm not selling a dream here. It's like, let's go do something that can be done. You know, we want to be playing next year at this time. That's, that's the goal. So great leadership, a positive attitude, and a leader that the players can connect with easily, Andy, and buy into his philosophy. That was Tobin Anderson, who took the FDU Knights to the round of 32 as a 16 seed. Now he will bring that experience to Iona with the hopes that he can continue the success that Rick Pitino leaves behind. And Rick Pitino will get a chance to coach in the Big East, one of the superior conferences in college basketball, Andy. Yeah, and I think St. John's will be back. Uh, I'm surprised, actually, that they've been down for a few years because, I mean, this is St. John's in New York and a great tradition and uh Shouldn't be very hard to recruit good players for St. John's. I mean, really, uh, I think Patino will get them back where they should be uh, very quickly. And as for Princeton, uh, I thought they were underseeded because Princeton has a long history of showing up very well in the NCAA tournament, going back to the Bill Bradley years and the Pete Carrill years. And that's one of Carrill's former players, Mitch Henderson, who's coaching Princeton. And uh, Princeton certainly acquitted themselves uh, very well in this tournament. And, and they always have. They've, they've always been a, a tough out. And, um, you know, in fact, uh, Mitch Henderson uh, played uh, for Princeton in 96 when they knocked uh, defending champion UCLA out of the tournament. And Princeton's had a lot of big moments in, in, in tournament play. Uh, so, uh, and I guess it was a nice fitting uh, tribute to their late uh, coach, Pete Carrill, that, uh, that they did what they did this year. Yes, they were a fun team, Andy. The Ivy League teams are always fun to watch and always fun to uh, root for, especially in the NCAA tournament. And Mitch Henderson really did a great job with that team, and they can hold their head high knowing that they got to the Sweet 16. They just went up against a buzzsaw in a far superior team than them in the Creighton Blue Jays and had no answers, specifically in the second half when Creighton started to pull away and really put the fire out on a game that was more dominant in the first yeah. 20 minutes than the second. And speaking of Rick Pitino, quickly. That's the thing. Creighton had to earn that game, though. You know, Princeton didn't give it to him. No. Creighton, uh, Creighton earned it. They did. And speaking of Rick Pitino, Andy, this wasn't only a great hire by St. John's. This was a huge hire by the Red Storm because the Red Storm are really trying to put themselves back on the map. They haven't had much success over the last several years. When you think of St. John's, you think of Lou Carnesecca, you think of the great success at the time that Mike Jarvis had when he was over there at head coach. So it was nice to see St. John's go out there now and get a top-tier head coach like Rick Pitino. Yeah, they struggled under Chris Mullen, and at the time Mullen went there, I thought, oh, that was perfect. You know, the former St. John star, and uh, he, he was going to lead them to great things, but it just didn't happen for Chris Mullen. 
So Rick Pitino, after his big press conference with St. John's earlier this week, he went on SportsCenter and he joined Sage Steele of ESPN. And Sage Steele asked him why he chose the St. John's Red Storm and if he still had it in him at the age of 70. And here was Pitino's response on ESPN SportsCenter earlier this week following the big press conference where St. John's University announced him as their next head coach for six years. Why St. John's? Uh, For me, to be the New York Knicks coach growing up on 26th Street in the east side of Manhattan, then moving to Queens, moving to Long Island, and certainly to come back to St. John's and to try and build a brand, build a culture that Lou made very popular. It's just exhilarating. It's also very challenging, but there's not a question in my mind that we will get it done. We will get it done, build St. John's into a great brand, one that's built on a strong work ethic, strong excellence in every area, away from the lines, as well as between the lines. Yeah, you mentioned the word challenge, and that's exactly what this is. I mean, okay, a couple years past 50, maybe. Officially, you'll be 71 in September when the, when the new season begins. And this is a six-year deal. I mean, I know you've heard this question a lot, Coach, but at this point in your life, why? Why did you want to take on such a big challenge at age 71? I can't live without basketball. Uh, I spent two years in Miami, um, away from the game, then went to Greece for two years, and two great years because I was back involved with basketball, became the national coach. And I can't live without it. It's, it's my life. Um, from the moment I wake up, I think about it. I thought about it playing on the playgrounds in Cambria Heights. Um, I just love the game so much. Love it. I can watch it all day long. Uh, I'm a true basketball junkie. Seth Greenberg was 13 years of age when um, him and his brother Brad used to play in the, in the playgrounds with me. So uh. um, I remember those days. And, and look, I can't live without basketball. It's my life. It makes me complete. Uh, I have a wonderful family. I have wonderful children. I have a wonderful wife. I have wonderful everything, but I can't live without the game. The game is part of my life. And, and I love that you recognize that and you just own it and you are exactly where you belong. We documented all the incredible success you've had, some amazing highs you've had as a coach, well-earned. And then the lows are significant too, Coach. Three major scandals during your 16 years at Louisville, the last of which we all know vacated that national championship in 2013. So it's been six years since you left Louisville. I want to ask you how you have changed as a coach, but also as a man. Well, Sage, Lou said it best. That's what confessions are for, um, certainly. But I can tell you I've never cheated the game. I've never cheated in the game. Um, you can't vacate a national championship. Look, you can take a batter down. You can't vacate. You can't change history. We won the national championship. We didn't cheat to win the game. Uh, We didn't pay players. We didn't do any of that. Uh, Things were done wrong by certain people, and uh, that's something that I'm not proud of that happened, but I'm always proud of Peyton Siva, Russ Smith, Gorky Zhang, Montrez Harrell, Shane Bahannon, Kevin Ware, uh, Russ and Peyton. I'm proud of all those. They earned that national championship. You cannot vacate that. You can take a banner down, but you can't vacate that. As far as some personal things, I paid my dues with that. And uh, I have a very forgiving family, and I'm very thankful for my family. 
So that was Rick Pitino earlier this week after his big press conference announcing his six-year deal with the St. John's Red Storm. He joined Sage Steele on ESPN and SportsCenter. And the one thing we know Rick Pitino's ready to do, Andy, at the age of 70 is he's ready to go out there and coach. He said basketball's his life. He said basketball's in his blood. And he's very positive about turning this St. John's Red Storm team around and he did win that championship with Louisville in 2013 although it was a scandalous year for the program and a lot of people looked down on Patino with the way that situation was handled but Iona went out there and gave him another opportunity and the success at Iona catapulted him now to be the St. John's Red Storm head coach. Well, Patino's problem there in Louisville was he couldn't just babysit those players all the time. I mean, uh, he's right. He didn't actually cheat to win that national championship. It was just some of the conduct uh, of his players uh, off the court, you know, in their dorms. Uh, you know, that, that's what did him in there. But uh, he won again with Iona this year. He had them in the tournament. They lost in the first round to UConn, but you can't blame him for that. Uh, he did a good job at, at Iona as well. He, he always has these pressing, uh, running teams that just wear the opponents down, and uh, that's the way he coaches, and, and that's what he gets his teams to do. It's going to be fascinating to see what he does in the Big East, Andy, in what is a very tough competitive conference year in and year out, and it's going to be great to have another big-name head coach on the hardwood leading a team to victory, and that is Rick Bettino, as he will take over the St. John's Red Storm, and another facet of the coaching carousel, more of a surprising one that took place earlier this week was... The Providence Friars head coach deciding yeah. to hang up for his Georgetown. for Georgetown. And we know Patrick Ewing didn't get some great recruiting at Georgetown the last several years. Georgetown really hasn't really gotten the job done from a winning perspective. And Ewing was supposed to go out there and change that. And he couldn't. And Ed Cooley, I guess, wants to live in the John Thompson success back in the day when he led Georgetown to many victories and I guess he just felt that the Georgetown Hoyas with more money was an appealing uh, team for him listen to me he put Providence on the map they're the only game in town in Rhode Island a lot of Massachusetts fans get into the Providence Friars he really had them as a competitive team in the Big East he got them to the tournament again this year fell short we know that but he got them in there. He's a great head coach, but leaving Providence to go to the Georgetown Hoyas was a little shocking because Providence, to me, is the better job with much more better players in place to win now. Yeah, I agree with you that Providence is a better uh, better situation for a coach. And another thing is Providence is the only game in town over there at Georgetown. You're right down the road from Maryland, and... Uh, Maryland is uh, seems to be the uh, choice of the you know uh, more local uh, players there because uh, they're building something they're getting into the NCAA tournament Georgetown's just been been losing and Georgetown has a lot of competition for recruiting uh, they you know not only is Maryland up the road but uh, right across the river you got the state of Virginia and you got Virginia there Virginia Tech uh, 
Yeah, I mean, he he would have been better off staying in New England. He really would have. Yeah, but uh, you also have the NBA team with the Washington Wizards. You got the Nationals. Yeah, you you have much more Capitals. teams that fans won a Stanley Cup. You know, you got the Capitals yeah, over there. Yeah, you have many on. more teams that your average sports junkie and fan is going to hone in on. Where Georgetown isn't going to be the main focal point in Providence. That's all those fans in Rhode Island really had were the Providence yeah. Friars and Ed Cooley's name was always a significant part of that success because everybody knew who he was and what he did for the program when he was head coach there so i was a little surprised dandy that ed cooley went to georgetown Oh, me too, yeah. I would go beyond surprised even. I'd say shocked. (laughs) And Andy, do you think that Patrick Ewing didn't get a fair shake, or do you just think he really wasn't fit to be a great college coach? Well, you know, it's funny. uh, Sometimes the great players don't make good coaches, you know. Uh, There's lots of examples of that. Uh, And uh, I don't know. It's just the results-driven business. I mean, Patrick Ewing meant so much to Georgetown as a player. Uh, but, uh, you know, the results weren't there. So uh, what can you do? How long can you stay with a bad situation? Because, uh, you know, Georgetown was losing not just one bad year, but uh, several. <laughs> and uh, the results uh, just didn't come, you know. So uh, they had to make some kind of a change. And I guess uh, Cooley fell right into their lap there, I suppose. Uh, they were probably prepared to do a lot of searching for a good coach. And uh, it is a, a good school where a former Georgetown player could do something. I don't know if there's any other players who played together with uh, Ewing when Georgetown was going to the Final Four. Uh, you know, in those glory days, if any of those guys are interested in coaching these days. But, uh, you know, I think uh, it would be a good place for somebody to go coming up from the mid-major level, uh, you know, who would want to prove himself at Georgetown. But... It's hard to explain just what could have happened to Ewing. Maybe the guy just isn't cut out for coaching. Who knows? Well, it's going to be very interesting, Andy, to see how all of these coaching uh, hires and moves that took place this past week, especially in the Big East with Cooley going to uh, Georgetown and Patino to St. John's plays out in the new season. And in college basketball, UConn and Gonzaga are playing the second game of the night portion of the Elite Eight. And UConn is out to an early 13-8 lead over the Gonzaga Bulldogs with about 13 minutes to play in the first half of that game. We will keep you updated on that game. We will go live to the game for any dramatic moments as we continue this evening's broadcast. We will come back and we will gear ourselves up for baseball as we are less than a week away from opening day. A lot of people honed in on the World Baseball Classic as the USA fell short from winning the whole thing to Japan by a final score of 3-2, to two, but it made for a lot of noise, it made for a lot of controversy with whether it's worth watching and paying attention to from the average purist baseball fan, where some viewed it as preseason baseball and didn't care about it, and others viewed it as serious baseball 
in the month of March with something to play for when all was said and done. And the Mets will begin their season like they've done many other years with some question marks as their top-tier closer and one of the best in the sport. Edwin Diaz goes down with what could potentially be a season-ending injury, and the Met fan is left soaking as to how we can try and get back to our winning ways without the premier closer going out there and sealing the deal and shutting the door in the ninth inning. We have a lot to get into on this evening's broadcast. We're going to step aside for a break. When we come back, we will get into some MLB baseball. Sportsbusshow1 at gmail.com. Sportsbusshow, the number one at gmail.com. As yours truly, Kevin Wolf and Andy Loigu are back at it on the microphones to give you hard-hitting, thought-provoking, passionate sports talk for the hardcore fan is our daily motto. Back after this. Did you receive a call or message that mentioned Social Security and demanded immediate action? Did the caller know your Social Security number or other personal information and tell you that your Social Security number had been used in connection with the crime? Did you feel worried that your Social Security number might be suspended, your bank account might be frozen or seized, or you could be arrested? That is not the Social Security Administration. Social Security will not threaten you, demand your personal information, or instant payment email or text you pictures or documents, or use a real government official's name to gain your trust. Social Security does not accept payments by gift card, prepaid debit card, internet currency, or by mailing cash. Criminals use these forms of payment because they are hard to trace. Do not be fooled. Hang up. Ignore them. Report this criminal activity to the Social Security Administration Office of the Inspector General at OIG. .ssa.gov. Produced at U.S. taxpayer expense. And welcome back to the Sports Buzz. Kevin Wolf and Andy Loigu coming to you live from the great state of New Jersey on this Saturday, March 25th, the year 2023, as there is one thing that the month of March always highlights, and that is the March Madness Tournament, as we are in the thick of it now with the Elite Eight taking place, the first round of the Elite Eight, the first two of four games in this weekend set as the earlier game this evening, Florida Atlantic University as a nine seed went out there and they upset Kansas State, the three seed, 79 to 76. And they are the first team to punch their ticket to Houston, Texas for the final four. Will UConn or Gonzaga Follow them there. That is yet to be determined as UConn has a small lead on Gonzaga with a little under 12 minutes to play in the first half. We will keep you updated on that game throughout this evening's broadcast. And when you think of the month of March, you think of the end of the month, Andy, when the baseball teams start winding down spring training and they start going out there and getting ready for 
a long, grueling 162-game season. But this year, the baseball fan got treated to a little bit more than a 162-game season. They got treated to a fantastic World Baseball Classic where the U.S. put themselves on the map and got to the final game but fell short by Japan by a final score of 3-2. to two. Yeah, the uh, World Baseball Classic, uh, one thing about it uh, was that the players really cared about playing in it and representing their countries, and uh, we had star-packed lineups. It was uh, quite interesting to see Otani uh, go up against Mike Trout in that, that last out, and uh, poor Trout looked like he didn't have a chance. Otani was just was firing over there. And it was interesting, the first time in a long time he ever came out of the bullpen, but he did it for his country. And, um, you know, it's funny, the injuries, injuries could happen anytime anyway. You could get injured playing in a spring training game as well as in a World Baseball Classic game. It's... Uh, they're always unfortunate. They're never something that you plan on. But uh, well, the frustrating thing with the Diaz injury, Andy, was it was a it was to repair a full thickness tear from a patellar tendon in his right knee, which happened with him celebrating on the mound after a big win. This didn't happen during play by play on the diamond. This happened at the conclusion of the game. So that left the Met fan even more upset about it because. Some of the Met fans felt like the celebrating was a little bit of stupidity on the part of Edwin Diaz to get as excited as he did and end up with possibly a season-ending uh, surgery. They say the recovery could take around eight months, but in certain cases it's possible to return earlier in closer to a six-month time frame. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But this was a big, big Big, big issue for the Mets, especially as they get ready to start a uh, new season with an offensive lineup that really hasn't changed much, but they do add Verlander to the starting pitching rotation, and you have to hope as a Met fan that they can go out there now and get over 101 wins and contend in an NL East that has really been dominated by the Braves and Phillies, and especially the Phillies last season, so this is definitely going to be harder now for the Mets to make some headway in a very tough division without their big-time closer and Edwin Diaz sealing the deal for them in a late-game situation. And the Phillies just had an injury to Hoskins, and he'll be out for a while. Uh, so just when uh, it appears like they're getting Bryce Harper back, they lose Hoskins. So I guess injuries are a part of the game for all the teams. But it's funny, it's, there have been celebration-related uh, injuries in the past uh, to other teams, too. Uh, I remember a few that occurred when uh, just celebrating uh, a home run, you know, when uh, the players all gather at home plate and uh, the guy jumps on home plate rather than just run across it. And they do all this uh, showy stuff, and a lot of times it has resulted in uh, injuries or or players just piling on top of each other, celebrating, and somebody uh, gets a muscle tear, hyperextension, or something. That kind of stuff happens. And uh, it's funny, I guess, how can you curb it? If you didn't have that kind of enthusiasm, you probably wouldn't be getting uh, 100% effort out of players either. I don't know. <laughs> No, absolutely, Andy. And the one thing I have to tell you, too, is that this World Baseball Classic was really 
uh, fun to watch, not only from a fan perspective, but the players really seem to get into it. They seem to rejoice in the fact that they got to go out there and play some meaningful baseball in the month of March and really prime themselves for what the long, grueling 162-game season has to offer. And guys like Trout and Otani and just some big, significant players, they were really relishing this moment in their post-game press conferences about going out there and really playing some great baseball. And uh, these other countries, like uh, it certainly meant the world to Japan. It's their their third championship now. And, you know, USA has won. Dominican has won. And I think that's it. They, this is the fifth one of these, and Japan's won three out of five, uh, which shows that uh, they've got a lot of pitching depth over there. It's not just Otani. Uh, I remember uh, Tanaka came from Japan, and he had a good career at the Yankees. And uh, Ichiro Suzuki, uh, you know, a lot of these players from Japan have been legitimate players. And uh, those Japanese leagues are pretty good. Uh, That's one thing Japan has. Not only do they have a handful of major leaguers, but uh, they've got a a legitimate uh, professional league where they get crowds of 40,000, 50,000 at the games where people are passionate about it. And uh, they've got that on top of the uh, major league talent that they have. So uh, that that adds up to a pretty formidable uh, force in these WBCs. Yes, and speaking of the WBC, Andy, you know, there was a lot of people on social media and various media pundits and critics. Some were for the tournament. Some felt it was fun to watch and and felt that it was some meaningful baseball in the month of March. And then other people felt like it was just a preseason exhibition, really didn't hone on, in on it and sort of felt that the players making a big deal about something like this of this magnitude really wasn't warranted because there was no significant meaning behind it. So you had that controversy for the last several weeks also with some of the real baseball purists not paying so much attention to it. And then the other big-time baseball purist or sports junkie was really honed in on it, even if you really weren't a traditional baseball fan, to say the least. Well, whether we care about it or not, uh, the players cared. And it showed. I mean, they really played like they cared. You could tell. And that that makes it exciting. You like to see players actually care about what they're doing. And we saw that. And it also helps grow the sport of baseball because baseball is really trying to go after a younger demographic, a demographic that it's had trouble capturing over the last uh, several years or so. More of the younger demographic is more intertwined with the NFL, the NHL, and the NBA. And baseball has been more about the old-timer, the hardcore fan in his 50s and 60s, whether that's an avid Yankee fan, an avid Met fan, or an avid Philly fan, baseball's looking for that 33-year-old, that 28-year-old, and they're trying to to grow their fandom. So the World Baseball Classic definitely helped with that because I felt a lot of the younger generation at a slow time in the sports world outside of the March Madness tournament really could latch on and watch some of these top-tier players go out and compete and play for their respective countries. It was funny, just a couple of days ago at Dunkin' Donuts over here in Whiting, 
Uh, I was having a conversation, a couple of old guys talking baseball. We were talking about how Chico Ruiz in 1964 stole home and Cincinnati beat the Phillies one to nothing. The Phillies finished one game out of first place. And uh, in those days, they didn't have wild cards. You know, it cost them a World Series. And here it is uh, over 50 years later, we're talking about things like this. <laughs> You know, yeah, us old fans, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're quite, a, quite a crowd when it comes to baseball. Baseball is a fun sport to talk about, and we'll have a lot of discussion about the sport of baseball as it all begins on Thursday as the New York Mets, who look to make another serious run to October in hopes that it goes further than a wild card with Buck Showalter getting ready to manage this team for his second year as they will hope that Justin Verlander can have the same goods that Jacob deGrom had, if not better, to be the one-two punch with Max Scherzer at the top end of this rotation. And as these pitchers get ready to go out there and pitch Andy and get ready for the new rules in baseball with the pitch clock, they've been able to try and adapt to them throughout the spring training portion of their schedule. But one pitcher who's had some frustration times with the pitch clock and sort of balked a little bit about it. Max Scherzer has an idea for pitch clock that would make it even worse where he wants the umpire to be able to shut off the pitch clock in certain situations in a baseball game. As the MLB rolls out the pitch clock this season, players have used spring training to try and adapt and adjust to the new rule added to make the game faster and interesting to consumers, but it has had some bumps and hurdles along the way. And one particular guy who was very upset with some of the pitch clock controversy was Max Scherzer. Here's what he had to say yesterday, post game for the New York Mets. Max, there's a lot going on this spring, obviously. Pitch clock, new rules, that kind of stuff. Where are you at at the end of it now? Is it, you said you had a plan coming in. Like, is the mindset, you know, that settled in on the new rules and, and fixed? And uh, I don't know how to describe it, I guess, but has the adjustment process just kind of gone as, as planned after that? Yeah, I mean, I, I never thought this was going to affect me. Uh, you know, you're never going to call a ball on me. It's never going to be a, a result of me. Um, you know, I've seen it. It was what I thought. I'd be able to, at times, be able to pitch quick, and other times pitch slow, um, and something I can use my advantage. Uh, the biggest adjustment has been on the hitter. Uh, hitters are now in the box ready. They're just not stepping out of the box. Uh, that's been an over- overwhelming adjustment. Uh, has been, from my perspective, is watching how the hitters have had to change this. Um, you know, you look at this and you still see some you know, potential holes in this that, you know, there could be some things that you can do to, you know, play piggy tack and be able to get the, you know, clock or be able to get the advantage in your thing. So, you know, seeing this, I just wish MLB would give the umpires the ability to turn the clock off. You don't see any violations. As long as the hitters are playing at speed, we're all playing at pace. You know, if the umpire wants to let the umpire turn the clock off and we just play baseball. The, the biggest rule here is that the hitter only has one timeout. So that's been really one of the biggest changes, uh, you know, to the offense from the offensive side of the ball, and that's forced the pace. And you know, we've seen the results of that. So the fans are excited about the pace of play, Andy. The games have been under three hours thus far. 
this spring, but some pitchers have been balking at the fact that they can't get more time in between pitch to ready themselves for the next pitch and get their arm right where they need it to be to deliver on that pitch. So these pitchers are still going to have to adjust to a pitch clock that doesn't seem to be as great as uh, the players thought it would be going in. It sped up the game, but there's still some issues behind it. Well, it sounds like a bunch of whining to me. <laughs> but one thing I am looking forward to in baseball this year, I think there's going to be, well, certainly more stolen bases because of the restrictions on uh, throwing over to first base. And also I think there's going to be more hitting to the opposite field because of the uh, rules against uh, infield platooning. And so we're going to see uh, uh, more stolen bases, uh, more first to third on, you know, hit and runs and uh, hitting to the opposite players using the whole field. Uh, and I think that's going to make for a better game. Yeah, no, absolutely, Andy. And listen, the pace of play and the faster game is definitely going to be intriguing to the fans because there were many times where the baseball fan, after three hours and 15 minutes in and only through maybe seven innings at best, would really get frustrated wanting the game to come to an end. There's not as many pitching changes. There's not as many mound visits. And there definitely won't be as much free time in between each pitch between the pitcher and the batter in the game so that'll be something that we look forward to and speaking of the start of baseball you know it's going to be interesting to see if Aaron Judge's continued winning success off of the 62 home run season last year can sort of make him the main catalyst this season for the New York Yankees as the Yankees went out there, spent a ton of money, over $300 million to bring Judge in, make him the face of the franchise, put the C on his jersey and make him captain. And now Aaron Judge needs to begin this season with a fresh start, hoping that he can continue to be the offensive catalyst and the uh, big offensive player that he's been for this team and get the Yankees back to some winning success, which they have won year in and year out, but they haven't gotten to a World Series since 2009. So the pressure is going to be on Cashman and Boone to finally deliver. And can guys like Rodon do well? Can Severino bounce back? He's injured right now. Can... Derek Cole, who's been up and down and on again, off again. Can he finally deliver and have more than a 12-win season under his belt on the mound to get the Yankees to the promised land? So it's going to be interesting to see how the Yankees go out here and start this season as they will begin against the San Francisco Giants out of the NL West on Thursday afternoon at the house that Homer's built as they begin a three-game set with them. And then you have the New York Mets who didn't do a ton in the offseason, but they have this same type of lineup. They're going to rely on Lindor. They're going to rely on Nemo and Alonzo to be the big catalyst offensively, and they're going to hope that Verlander and Scherzer at the top end of the rotation can go out there and get you 12, 13 wins apiece and keep you contending in an NL East where the Phillies look to get back to their second consecutive World Series and the Braves look to be trouble for any other foe 
foe they go up against in that division. As far as the Yankees go, if the Yankees, now it's it's inevitable that teams are going to start pitching around Aaron Judge. And uh, somebody has to make the pitchers pay for that. You know, somebody has to protect Judge and uh, and show the pitchers that there are other places uh, that the Yankees can get offense from uh, than just Judge. If the Yankees can be more like the Mets offensively in terms of being able to sustain a rally once in a while, especially in a clutch spot, uh, the Yankees will be fine, and maybe they will make it to the World Series. But, uh, you know, Houston lost Altuve to an injury there in the World Baseball Classic, uh, and Houston may uh, may decline a little bit this year, uh, we could hope. Well, they come <laughs> and, into the start of this season banged up. They got some key injuries, and that's going to hurt them. But you know what? They got a good manager in Dusty Baker. They're going to be in the thick of it when all is said and done, and they'll more than likely be a team in the postseason. So from an Astros perspective, I'd be concerned a little bit, but not to a point where I don't think they're going to miss out on the postseason. Yeah, well, no, of course they'll be in the postseason, but history shows it's very tough to repeat as world champions. You know, not very many teams have done it. In the Yankees' glory years, it was almost taken for granted, but uh, the Yankees' glory years have become a distant memory for many of us. As for the Mets, uh, uh, they'll be up there. I still like their offense, and uh, you have the age question with um, Scherzer and uh, Verlander, but uh, they'll put up enough zeros to, to keep the Mets in the games that they pitch. And uh, it, it will come down to um, how the Mets handle their bullpen until uh, Diaz returns. And then you always wonder when a player comes back from an injury, too, uh, does he still have it? You know, there may be a period where, uh, you know, he just uh, doesn't get in the rhythm right away. You know, with relief pitchers, sometimes you never know. Well, what was amazing about Mariano Rivera was his consistency year after year. With some other relievers, they've been up and down. We'll have to just wait and see on that. But as, as long as uh, Diaz is there, the Mets have to keep going to him until uh, proven otherwise, you know? No, absolutely, Andy. And uh, Steve Cohen, the Mets owner, earlier this week basically said that it's going to be tough to replace the talented closer, and it's going to be a difficult task, but he says they won't overreact to it, and they will try and do what's best for the organization. Cohen was asked about trading for reliever on a specific show on SNY through Joel Sherman and John Heyman. And per SNY, this is what Cohen said. When you get into a situation like this, I think you have to stay calm and you don't overreact. I think if you do have the tendency to make mistakes or overpay for somebody. We're going to assess the people we have. We have some reasonably good depth. My guess is we're going to get into the decision and make decisions at some point. It's a long season and opportunities come up along the way and that's how we're going to approach it. So if we need to fill a hole, we'll fill it, but I don't see a need to overreact. It's hard to replace a guy like Diaz. I think we've built out a lot of depth on this team, so it's the old next man up attitude. So basically it sounds to me like it's going to be bullpen by committee to sort of formulate who's going to be closer for this team unless there's some available option via a uh, 
free agent that's available. Or a midseason trade, you never know. The Well, the Phillies last year did it by committee. <laughs> uh, they, they got saves from quite a few different people and uh, holds from different people and set up. Uh, they kind of just, uh, I think Rob Thompson just, just looked at uh, his charts as to who's a good matchup against which hitters, and uh, you know a lot of thought went into it. But uh, you know they they really did do it by committee and were able to pull it off and when they needed it the most. So I'm sure Buck Showalter, if he had to, can handle a bullpen by committee like that. You know Buck's been involved in a lot of pennant races, and I don't think there's anything in baseball that takes him by surprise. So uh, we would have to rely on Buck just making the right moves and using the whole bullpen in ninth inning situations, depending on who's going a couple of days without pitching or who might be a good matchup against a certain hitter. You know, it's <laughs> a lot of thought will go into it, but uh, I think they'll get by. Yes, I sort of tend to agree with you on that, Andy. I just hope that it doesn't hurt them to a point where they miss out on some uh key games and key situations that could hurt their chances for making the postseason. I have the confidence in the team. I'm very confident with Buck Showalter leading this team in the dugout. So hopefully the Mets will have another good season under their belt, get over 100 wins again, and try and make a deeper run in to the postseason. And when you talk about the Philadelphia Phillies, Andy, they come off of a heartbreaking World Series loss to the Houston Astros, but they go out there and they get a top-tier shortstop and Trey Turner and they add to their already powerful lineup and the Phillies are going to be hungry to try and repeat for the second consecutive year in a row. Yeah, I'm thinking with this injury to Hoskins, uh, Bohm could move over to first base for the time that Hoskins is out. They could have a more of a defensive guy at third. There may be a spot for uh, Stott over there at third possibly. Uh, I think the Phillies will get by, but yeah, Boehm would probably play first base. And, um, you know, Harper, uh, I don't know when he's going to be ready to, to be Bryce Harper again, but uh, he's shown signs that he may be back in the lineup sooner than, than people think, just because athletes sometimes recuperate faster than average people do with certain injuries. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. Everybody's got their uh, concerns, but it's always better to be dealing with these things early than to have surprise injuries hit you in August or September. You know, it is a long season and a lot of things can be worked out. And there is that mid-season trading deadline, too. So before the season starts, Andy, give me your predictions on where you think the Yankees, Mets, and Phillies will all finish as the season uh, begins. Well, I think all three teams will be in the playoffs. I don't. I'm not too concerned about that. I think uh, they'll all find themselves in the playoffs. Toronto could be very good this year, uh, and uh, the Yankees could have a battle for that top spot. And you've also got those improving Baltimore Orioles who uh, have the uh, status of pennant contender this year after winning uh, you know, 83 games. Yeah, and, it was last year. and they're a and young most team. Of them in the second half of the season. I mean, they're a hot team in, in August. And Guys like Rauchman stepped up in a big spot last season and really catapulted this team offensively along with contributors day in and day out for young manager Brandon Hyde who really made a name for himself with this young organization. And their team on the rise, and also 
you know, they may make a good midseason deal too if they're in contention. Now, last year midseason, they were still thinking in terms of building, and then the team got uh, red hot in the second half of the season. If they're in the race and they make a smart midseason deal, who knows what this team's going to do? Going to be interesting to see. And then you have the Red Sox, Andy. I know they added Justin Turner, who's a big, prolific offensive player, but they didn't do much. They didn't do much outside of that. And the Red Sox seem like they're more in the uh, rebuild phase than they are in a win now phase, as they made sure they signed Rafael Devers. He was a key guy that the owner wanted to go out there and see in a Red Sox uniform, so they got the Devers deal done, but outside of Devers and Turner, they didn't do much to really show the fan base that they're looking to compete in a tough AL East. Yeah, I'm kind of glad I'm not a Red Sox fan these days because they've got some issues there, and I don't think they have a very complete team coming into the season, especially in the in an AL East where you've got Toronto, you got Baltimore, you got the Yankees, you're up against a lot of competition there. It's going to be tough for the Red Sox. And there's always another team in that AL East, Andy, that's in it every Tampa. year. <laughs> Kevin Cash, manager of the Tampa Bay Rays, who's got a young team, but they find ways to win. They're gritty. They play the game fundamentally sound, and they play it great for nine innings and they're tough to solve and their pitching has been lights out for the last several years led by a great bullpen and then they got guys one through nine in that lineup that can just come at you in any way they can with the bat yeah that rose arena could carry a team for a while i mean that guy's a legitimate star and yes, he's he in is. the prime of his career And then in the AL Central, you have Terry Francona, you have the Cleveland Guardians, and you have a young Guardians team that got to the postseason last year, bounced out by the Yankees in the divisional round, but you have a Guardians team that will try and continue their winning success in the AL Central in a division that seems to be weaker than stronger. The White Sox have faded, the Twins haven't been anywhere near competitive and the Tigers are still in rebuild mode with a young team not too many veterans and AJ Hinch still trying to find his way as being a successful manager in the Motor City. Well Minnesota and Chicago underachieved last year especially Chicago Uh, there's a lot more expected from those two teams than was delivered and uh, I have a hard time seeing Cleveland uh, getting into the playoffs this year uh, although Terry Francona always finds a way. <laughs> but uh, Cleveland looks like a pretty average team on paper. But then again, they don't always play average on the field. So uh, we'll have to wait and see on that one. And then you have the AL West, which has been dominated by the Houston Astros and big-name players and a manager in Dusty Baker, who's been an elite stature of a manager in the sport for a long time. 
But you also make the ALS that more intriguing this year as Bruce Bochy decides to come back to the dugout and lead a young Texas Rangers team with a top-tier starter in Jacob deGrom going to the mound every fifth day to try and get the Rangers back on the map and make them competitive in the AL West with the Houston Astros and the likes of the Oakland A's whose ship has sunk fast and the Angels who seem to rely on Trout and Otani year in and year out and those two guys seem to not be the catalyst to get this team back to their winning ways. Well, they only have two real uh, quality players there. It's hard to win if you don't have a uh, overall level of talent there. To, you can't just depend on two guys. Uh, and uh, Seattle was a pretty special team last year, playoff team, and uh, so that's another team to contend with over there. That's one thing that was great about the WBC. Uh, you saw Mike Trout and uh, Shohei Otani in big game situations, and that's something you haven't seen them in with the Angels. No, and we'll keep you updated here. 20 seconds to play in the first half. UConn leads Gonzaga 36-31 as Gonzaga's going to shoot a few free throws after this quick timeout to try and get some more points on the board before halftime. So UConn leads Gonzaga 36-31 with 20 seconds to play in the first half of that Elite Eight matchup out in Las Vegas, Nevada Sounds in the like Western a bracket. finish coming up again. <laughs> yes, it does. And when they come back, I will take us to the final 17 seconds or so of that half. Speaking of basketball, on the NBA scoreboard, we have some locals currently playing some NBA hoops tonight as the Brooklyn Nets at 39-34 and 34 look to end their season in a strong way and continue to win to try and get into a post season and they lead the Miami Heat 100 to 83 as the Miami Heat are still winning with Eric Spolstra but they're having a tougher season doing it as they try to find a way into the NBA postseason so the Nets lead the Heat 100 to 83 late in the third quarter and the Sixers won't play until 10 o'clock as they take on the Phoenix Suns at 38 and 35, a Phoenix Suns team where Kevin Durant hasn't been much of an impact, and a Phoenix Suns team, Andy, that could be on the outside looking in for a deep run in the postseason. Yeah, the Sixers are on a West Coast trip right now, and it's a pretty tough one. And uh, but I like what I've seen out of the Sixers. An interesting team uh, is the Cleveland Cavaliers with uh, Donovan Mitchell. Yes. who uh, should have been a Nick. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that. Andy, I mean, let uh, me just go to the final 10 seconds of the first half between UConn and Gonzaga. All right. Sunogo going down low. Jackson letting it rip. Killed and a three! That's how the first half ends for UConn. A seven-point lead equaling their biggest of the first half. Well, this is some pass by Jackson. My goodness. Great spacing, great mall movement, and finish with the three. How about this Caravan, who had 11 points? So a big three by Caravan. 
and the Yukon Huskies go into the locker room, Andy, with a seven-point lead out of the West Bracket in the Elite Eight, and we have a nail-biter with 20 minutes to play to determine the second team to stamp their ticket to Houston, Texas. Go UConn. Yeah, I guess I'd rather be ahead by seven than down by seven. But, uh, yeah, a lot of things can happen in a half of basketball. Well, good first half for the Huskies. UConn's 5 of 16 from the three-point arc. One of nine is Gonzaga, a team that likes to hit a lot of threes, is only one of nine in the first half, and that's really what's hurt them against this UConn team, who's a very good perimeter shooting team and a team who plays physical fast and loves to run up the floor quickly. So Gonzaga needs to have better shots from beyond the arc, three-pointers, if they want a chance to beat a tough UConn team. Well, Gonzaga's got outstanding big players. Gonzaga, you worry about them controlling the boards and uh, and keeping it tough to penetrate for, uh, you know, it's funny. You need to penetrate to open up those outside shots, you know, and the defense has to guard against you driving to the hoop. Uh, then you can kick the ball out and you have open, open looks from three. You know, there's a way to set up a good three-point shot. You don't want to be forcing those things, and you want to have the defense also worried about you uh, being able to score inside. So uh, a lot of dynamics that go into that game. But uh, looks good for UConn so far. Let's hope they play another good half. Yes, another team it's looked good for in basketball, but on the professional NBA side of things has been the New York Knicks, as A.J. Barrett and Julius Randle have been key contributors to this team's success this year, and they have a record of 42-33, and and they'll get ready to take on the Houston Rockets on Monday night, as it's been some winning success for Tom Thibodeau and company. Andy and the Knicks can finally breathe a sigh of relief for the fan base and try and hopefully get the number five spot in the NBA postseason. Yeah, they'll have a winning record. They'll be in the playoffs and uh, they'll be competitive. That's all well and good for the Knicks. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. This Eastern Conference is going to be pretty interesting this year. Milwaukee and uh, the, the Sixers and Boston and uh, Cleveland's in that mix. Miami, uh, it's a good Toronto's in the mix. Toronto, the Chicago still, Bulls. Still a factor, yeah. Yeah, the Sixers just played two games with the Bulls. Uh, the other night, the Sixers took a 21-1 lead at the start to, on the road <laughs> against the Bulls. What a way to start a game. <laughs> so there's a lot happening in the world of sports. If you're a hockey fan, the Rangers and Devils have not disappointed this year as two locals that we look at for making a deep run, hopefully in the postseason, to the Stanley Cup Finals as both teams have had great seasons, Andy, and both teams have really gone out there and played some great hockey on the ice. Yeah, one of them's probably going to meet up with the Bruins. Uh, Those Boston Bruins have been... uh quite impressive but you know hockey's been a funny sport where regular season success has seemed to be a detriment rather <laughs> it, it it seems like the the team that wins the president's cup hardly ever wins the stanley cup anymore you know you never know who's going to get hot sometimes it's a hot goalie it's been uh harder to predict than either even the other sports because 
regular season hasn't been really any predictor of postseason success. And I'll say this, Andy, as a huge sports junkie and as a guy who likes to predict games and go out there and give great insight on all these different sporting events that we cover on a weekly basis on this broadcast, when it comes to March Madness time and it comes to bracket time, these brackets, although you have some great teams that you want to root for, you also have the upset special that really impedes the bracket and the success of the player going out out there trying to win money in some of these bracket challenges when these fans fill these brackets out and the bracket as fun as it is to do it's very hard to get these things right year in and year out well you know now even more than ever uh, the uh, transfer portal has uh, really evened out uh, the game and uh, I guess that's a good thing because you don't have a few blue bloods dominating the game anymore I mean Carolina didn't even make the tournament and uh, you know that's a team that was always in the tournament year in and year out and then you, you take know, a team like Duke without Mike Krzyzewski with John Shire on the bench as the main guy and you'd have to wonder if Mike Krzyzewski was still the head coach of Duke if they would have advanced further in this tournament well Duke did have a good team this year and uh, you know they didn't disgrace themselves in the tournament. No. I mean, they still uh, are a quality program. With that transfer portal, uh, teams can uh, fix themselves uh, uh, just by picking up on players that maybe somebody underrated before. Or, you know, you've had a chance to evaluate some of these players who are in the transfer portal, and if you find the right player who meets your needs, uh, you can fix a basketball program pretty quickly. And uh, I think it's created a lot of balance in the league, uh, in, in the whole uh, Division One there. And uh, I, I think uh, the, the sport is in pretty good shape. <laughs> uh, you know, the uh, 15 and 16 seeds aren't weak sisters anymore, Eve. Everybody's got players who can play and who fits into a good system. And although you had teams like Houston, Purdue, Kansas and Alabama as your one-seeded teams this tournament. It just goes to show you that you can have a great season and you could come a long way in this NCAA tournament, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to the end. Yeah, it's a much more better balanced, and uh, there are no weak teams in the NCAA tournament anymore. I think everybody's uh, there for a reason and everybody's made good decisions on the players they have in the transfer portal helps that a lot. I think it particularly helps some of these schools who may not do real great at recruiting, but they have a good uh, possibility of getting players who were misevaluated when they first uh, came out of high school. Yeah, or you take a team like the St. Peter's Peacocks last year or the FDU Fairleigh Dickinson University Knights this year who not too many people hone in on, who not too many people watch or hear about, and nationally people don't even know that these schools exist, but you put them in the tournament, they become a Cinderella special, and you fall in love with the entire team hoping that they can make a deep run, and that's what makes the NCAA March Madness tournament so special Andy it's the best one and done situational tournament in all of sports the NFL postseason's great but second to that is the NCAA basketball tournament it's just a fantastic event yeah there are a lot of really good smart players and good coaches who we just uh, 
don't know about that much during the season, and they emerge when when they're all in the, on the same stage in the March Madness. You know, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of players out there that it's not that they're not good good players; they just maybe didn't get as much publicity as some others. So Gonzaga and UConn in the Elite Eight out in Las Vegas are battling in the second half, Andy. A little bit under 18 minutes to play, and UConn holds a 10-point lead, 44-34, to 34, as Drew Timmy just had a huge dunk at one end of the floor to get the Zags within 10 as they battle the UConn Huskies for a trip to the Final Four in Houston. Well, that Timmy, uh, he puts up some big numbers for that team. He's uh, quite a force inside, but... Nice to see uh, UConn's building the lead. Uh, Go Huskies. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, Andy, as we wrap up this evening's edition of the Sports Buzz, any final thoughts? Well, you know, we like to do our looks back. And uh, looking back 50 years, uh, women's sports was really just starting to emerge. Now uh, we see... uh, yeah, women's sports uh, on all, almost an equal footing, uh, maybe not always interest-wise, but at least in terms of uh, colleges after Title IX are, are balancing their programs where they have, uh, for every male sport, they also have a female sport. So they have equal opportunity as far as uh, women and men getting chances to play intercollegiate sports. Back in uh, 1972, we had our first women's basketball national championship, and that was Immaculata University in suburban Philly. They were the first women's college basketball national champion. They won again in 73 and 74. Then they placed second in 75, 76, and 77, uh, which was pretty amazing for a program that just got started. And in uh, 72, they're they're the 15th seed out of 16 teams in the tournament, even though they finished with a record of 24-1. and They made a Hollywood movie called The Mighty Max about Coach Kathy Rush and how she started that program. And it was interesting, uh, that first year, the players had to sell toothbrushes to raise money to go to the Final Four in Illinois. They had very uh, substandard facilities. But in spite of all that, Kathy Rush still had a 149-15 and 15 record over there. And she's in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame, and they played in the first nationally televised women's game in 1975, game against Maryland. And they played their first game at Madison Square Garden against Queens College in 1975, and that game drew over 11,000 people. But uh, prior to 1973, women's sports was not really getting much respect. In fact, uh, the NCAA tournament uh, for women, uh, in those days, in uh, 73 to 81, you had something called the AIAW National Tournament. And I think AIAW stood for something like uh, Association of Interscholastic uh, Athletics for Women. The AIAW? IAW Women's Basketball Tournament was a national tournament for women's collegiate basketball teams in the United States held annually from 1972 to 1982. It was formerly the CIAW Tournament, and that was founded in 1972, and it was replaced by the NCAA Tournament 
Okay, in 1982, EA had your first NCAA Women's Division Championship tournament. That was won by Louisiana Tech uh, over Cheney. And then Southern Cal won it a couple of years. Old Dominion, Texas, Tennessee with uh, Pat Summit. Tennessee ended up uh, winning uh, three in a row from 96 to 98. And uh, Connecticut arrived in 1995. They won it again in 2000, and in 2002, they started to dominate. Like I mentioned earlier in the show, I think women's uh, basketball is more competitive now than it's been for a while. Uh, a few years ago, Connecticut was just so dominant, that it was just hard to watch. They hardly ever played a close game. And speaking of college basketball, Andy, the UConn Huskies' dominance is very, very uh, big in this game against Gonzaga as Mark Few just called a timeout with a little under 15 minutes to play in the second half. UConn has built a 21-point lead at 58-37. to 37. So the Gonzaga Bulldogs are feeling it from the tough UConn Huskies in this evening's Elite Eight matchup. And UConn is just 15 minutes away from trying to get to Houston for a Final Four matchup. As this tournament nears its end, Andy, what two teams can you see playing one another for the national championship? UConn and Florida Atlantic. How's that sound? Wow. You're putting FAU in the championship game, Andy? Well, you know, uh, there would be one more surprise, although I've, I've, I've watched them play a couple of games, and they are a very solid team. Now, Creighton is still in the picture. Yes. Now, do you think they'll beat uh, San Diego State tomorrow? It's hard to say. San Diego State is such a strong defensive and rebounding team. And as great as Texas has been, Andy, something's telling me that this could be Laranega's year with Miami. Yeah, even though uh, Texas is my remaining uh, you know, shot at a Final Four. Oh, I better root for you then. Well, you know, that's not so important, though. You know, these, these everybody, seems like everybody in America had a busted bracket this year. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, when it comes to rooting interest, I would certainly root for Miami against Texas. Uh, but Texas is a very solid team. And they've looked very good when I've watched them uh, in this tournament. Uh, and uh, as far as uh, San Diego State's our team to pick because, uh, you know, their strength is their defense. But uh, Florida Atlantic uh, has been an underestimated team that has risen to the occasion. And I've just got a feeling about that team that, uh, you know, they haven't cracked under the pressure and that they may <laughs> just pull this thing off. Rooting-wise, yeah, out of what's left here, I'm rooting for UConn. Uh, UConn and Miami, uh, that'll be, uh, I would hope, the winner of that game would, uh, still, it's so tough to predict, but uh, I guess going with my first instinct, yeah, let's see UConn and Florida Atlantic and see how that turns out. Well, there you (laughs) have it, folks. (laughs) You heard it from Andy the Walrus Loigu himself, the sports connoisseur. When it comes to big games, he gave his prediction with UConn taking on FAU in the championship game for the national championship. And we will come back to the microphones next week, and we will see if Andy's prediction 
will be right, but well, Gonzaga, Andy, can't find the three-point basket. They're 2 of 15 from beyond the arc, and that long-range shot that isn't going in tonight is hurting them in this Elite Eight game against UConn as UConn has a 22-point lead as we leave the airwaves, 62-40, to 40, and they are 12 minutes away from a Final Four appearance in Houston. Anyway, Andy, anything? Last second thoughts. I think we've wrapped it up pretty good. What are the odds that uh, Aaron Rodgers will be a jet, jet the next time we talk? <laughs> I mean, who knows? Right? You know, I could have told you that a few weeks back that he was going to be a jet, but we're still sitting in limbo. We're still wondering. The media pundits are still going crazy and scratching their heads. I mean, one minute, the uh, Mark Murphy, the vice president of football, uh, operations for the Green Bay Packers is telling you they're ready to move on and then a few days later he's telling you that everything he knows about Rodgers is confidential and he can't say no more. The devil is in the details. Eventually somebody's going to have to bite whether that's the Packers or the Jets that's yet to be determined but it's going to be very interesting to see how all of this plays out. We know Aaron Rodgers wants to play. We know he wants to be a Jet and by the way Andy the fact that he said he was 90% retired before he went into that darkness retreat for four days and then comes out and magically wants to play football again that's a little hard for me to believe. If he didn't want to play football he should have just retired uh, sometimes you, you you think you can still do it but then you have your doubts in yourself with that said you've just listened to episode 20 of the sports buzz passionate sports talk for the hardcore fan is our daily motto i thank you all for tuning in spread the word and continue to enjoy the ncaa march madness tournament and we will come back to you next week live and local from the great state of new jersey as opening day will be in our rearview mirror and we will get ready to talk some intriguing baseball conversation. With that said, he was Andy Loigu, I was Kevin Wolf, and this is Queen, and we are the champions. Adios. Until next time. Oh,